Hello, language lovers, and welcome to episode one of season two of Life in a Second Language with your host, me, Springday. On this show, I talk to creative people from all over the world about what it's like to live, love, work, study, and even raise a family in a second language, often in adult language, particularly this episode, so it may not always be appropriate for young ears. Now, if you speak two or more languages, hopefully you can relate to what we get into on this show, or if you're thinking about dabbling in a foreign language for the very first time, we can give you a hint as to what you might be in for, and let you know of some opportunities you didn't even know existed. It's season two, people. Now, the show has been on a two-week break for a fantastic reason. I got Maui'd. You know, the thing that brings us together and love to love that will follow you forever and ever have you the wings well no we didn't have the rings because the rings are in america waiting for when it's safe to travel again to do the big ceremony with friends and family under a massive tarp and drinks served out of a chicken coop the way god intended we had a lovely civil ceremony at city hall and a socially distanced mexican fiesta in the back garden as they call it here in london and frankly I've been enjoying the rebranding of our COVID sheltering into a homey moon. And I've been reading the comments of the Zoom chat saved from the ceremony where someone said, I look like Cinderella, which I love, even though it's only because the red shoe dye that got all over my feet makes it look like I cut off my toes and heels to make the shoes fit. So, have I been studying a second language during the show's hiatus? (laughs) No. Not unless that second language is love. I will say that my now husband and I have talked about studying a new foreign language together because he was born in Mexico City and the early Christmas present I bought him on Amazon Prime yesterday that arrived last night, the complete collection of Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, turned out to be in Spanish. Now I have no idea why I decided to do this on my honeymoon, but I've also started learning how to use brand new professional podcast editing software, which may not be a new language, but it is a frustrating new technical dialect that makes me sound exactly like my dad when I was helping him set up Zoom on his computer for the very first time so he could watch my wedding ceremony. Here's a tasty bite of that. I'm glad we're doing this now and not on the wedding day. Uh, I'm glad we're doing I, it. It says, I, you know, it said to push this button so it could reset the password. I pushed it, and then it froze, and it wouldn't do shit. So just a minute, see if I can get it. Re- it's restarting. I had to get in the password thing that was on there. It wouldn't go away. So I had to restart it and get it off. Stupid. It's always some dumb fuck-up thing. Big windows ready. Don't turn off. Fuck you. Turn it off. God damn it. This, if they just leave shit alone, because I know that's that's my fucking password. Asshole. Stupid son of a bitch. How long is this going to fucking take? Did he windows ready? Don't turn off your computer. Kiss my fucking ass. Jesus Christ. What's wrong with these fuckers? 
I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That is by far my favorite phone conversation with my dad. Today's guest on the show is Venezuelan comedian in Australia and a friend of mine, Ivan Aristagueta. I really hope I got that right. He has a very unique story, unlike any we've heard on the show so far. And on top of that, earlier the day of the interview, I had received news that after weeks of COVID lockdown waiting, that my wedding ceremony had finally been approved by the powers that be. And since love was in the air, Yvonne and I talked about dating in a second language and whether or not being native speakers of different languages is the real reason for communication issues with interlingual couples. As a warning, there are some microphone issues for the first 10 minutes that I I have done my best to iron out, but I'm not apologizing for anything because it's not like you're paying me for it. Now, I am going to ask you to stick with the interview because the sound quality gets better and the interview is just beautiful. It's super positive and life-affirming. Who doesn't need more of that in their life? If you like the episode, hunt down Ivan Aristagueta online and buy a ticket to one of his online cooking lesson show parties. They are super fun. And you just might learn how to make the best food you've ever had in lockdown. In any case, find Ivan Aristagueta on social media. He will brighten up your feed and lighten your mood. FYI, the interview was done around 1 a.m. my time, and I am not a night owl. As the interview goes on, I get more and more punch drunk, so enjoy that. And now it's time for our interview with Ivan Aristagueta. I must have that right by now. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I am so excited to introduce my friend, Venezuelan comedian in Australia and chef. Please welcome to the show, Ivan Aristagueta. Yay, you said. Yay! <laughs> it only took me 10 minutes. <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Brain. This is lovely. Good to see your face. This is very, our relationship is very international. We met in Japan, then then we caught up in Edinburgh, and now now you're in London and I'm in London. <laughs> exactly. I, I like to call us the 10%. The 10%. Because, because I feel like 90% of the world like is born, grow up, and die near, like pretty much in the same place, right? And oh, 10% yeah. kind of decide to go elsewhere and get passports and visas and roam the world. Learning new languages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I consider you part of that, part of my international family. Yeah, you too, you too. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Let's start at the beginning. What is your native language and what other languages do you speak? My native language is, is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I only, um, I only speak two languages, Spanish and English, yeah. I know if it was in different other languages, but I don't speak them. As a Spanish speaker, I understand a lot of Italian and Portuguese. How so? But that's a common thing. Um, we have a lot of um, similar words and um, similar um, structure of, of sentences. I've always thought that there would be a great way of learning another language. I want this. Someone has to make an app that immediately tells you the words that are from your language that are the same words or very similar or very close to other languages. Mm -hmm. So you can read a list, for example, uh, of, let's say uh, blue, the color blue in English and then in French is bleu. So it's right. very similar. I think uh, all of us in our language, I don't know how does it work 
in in you know Asian languages like uh, Cantonese, Mandarin, Japanese, Korean. I don't know. There might be also similarities. For example, I think one of the similarities is the word for tea. I think cha is is very common in all those languages. It's a similar word. So I think we all know a bit of other languages in our own language, and uh, and that happens uh, if you are a Spanish speaker. It's a, a romantic language like our Italian, French, Portuguese, and Spanish. They have their own root. And um, which is Latin, I think. So uh, if I speak to someone who is speaking and not not like a dialect, like the, the international Italian, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And if they speak slowly, and we can have a conversation where we both understand at least sixty seventy percent of what we're saying. Have you ever been tempted to learn one of those languages since you know so much already, or feel like you understand? So much. Yeah, when when I um when when I was cooking when when I was studying cooking and chefing and you get all this obsession at the beginning with the French terms, I flirted with the idea of learning French. But then it was something that I outside cooking, like I knew all the terms outside cooking, I didn't feel the need of learning French because I I was like. I don't know. I want to go to France, but I don't feel like it's very different from from what I feel with Japan, for example. I want to, and I I, I, I haven't been um, actively studying Japanese, but I, that's one of the languages that I would like. I have a, a, a bigger reason. Is it because it's more foreign, and the farther away it is, the more kind of attractive it is as a language? Well, we were talking about Cobra Kai before we started the, the show, so <laughs> so I think there was something about. My generation. There's the millennials. There's the there's the um, Gen X. Mm-hmm. But in between, there's there's Zennials. Yeah. Yes. So my the way of describing Zennials for me is like if you ask um, someone who is in Gen X, if you ask what what do you think it will be a, a, an iconic mentor of movies of your generation, like a mental character of movies, they're going to say 100% of the time Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda, mm-hmm. because that's, that's the original generation of Star Wars. And if you're a millennial, they're going to say uh, uh, Dumbledore from Harry Potter. Mm. But if you're a senior, it's Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, so I am uh, uh, Zinil and and Mr. Miyagi is my mentors. And there was something about Venezuela, I don't know why, but karate has always been, even before uh, before Karate Kid, karate has been a a common activity uh, in Venezuela. There's karate schools all over the country and, uh, uh, and sometimes in one summer you have like three different schools, different styles, and there's a big connection with, with Japan through karate. I did karate since I was a kid. I never got to a uh, uh, black belt, never, but because uh, I was on and off. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the teenage years and you start skateboarding and you forget about karate and then the girls and then, then, then I got to uni years and I, I went, oh, I want to go back to say hello to my sensei. And there's a connection to... Uh, uh, with with Japan because my sensei sensei was the, the, what they call the shihan was was a Japanese guy and there's a, they have like annual or biannual uh, every two years visits from someone from Japan so since then another thing happened in Venezuela Venezuela is an interesting cultural place sushi wasn't a thing till um, I have to say 
late 90s. We do know about sushi till the late 90s. But then the booming of sushi uh, restaurants in Venezuela was crazy. And we quickly adapted sushi and turned it into a Venezuelan thing. The similar way Japan does with international cuisine and turn it Japanese, uh, we turn Japanese food in Venezuela. So uh, we started adding fried plantains in the sushi and mango in the sushi and uh, in, in sushi rolls. It started, so those flavors in, in Venezuela, we love, uh, we eat a lot of plantains, fried plantains, which is a typical Caribbean thing. So that sweet savory combination is, is very typical in our food. So most sushis in Venezuela are slightly sweet. <laughs> they have a sweet element. I was starting to be attracted to cooking mm -hmm. and my mom was very, uh, she loved the sushi thing and we, were, we started going to this place that sold imported uh, Japanese stuff. I bought my first and I still have it. It's, it's my main cooking knife then in that shop. So I've, I've, from karate and then cooking, and then my first uh, Japanese cookbook, I started developing this this thing for Japan. I always saw Japan, I think that I will never, I will never go there. Like it was too far from Venezuela and, and it's so out of reach. Like it's just a mythical place for me. And then when I started living in Australia, right after I got divorced, I said, one of the first thing I said, I'm gonna travel to Japan by myself. And that's when we met. I'm gonna make this my thing. This is going to be my thing. And I had, I had a great time and I've been there three times. Still haven't studied, but I, I would like one day uh, to go to Japan and have at least, at least a, a, a conversation without looking at a book or my phone. Even if it's, you know, not fluent, I don't care, but mm -hmm. without looking at a reference just letting go that's that's my goal when you have that kind of personal connection to a language and or a culture then it's such a great motivation to learn it yeah you know and what you do learn sticks yeah and and i learned so many terms in, in japanese terms in karate because that's another thing they don't translate i think there's a lot of karate styles in america that they count in in english and they 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 have the name of the forms and the, and the positions in english everything you have like a like a little uh japanese vocabulary test every time you do an exam right in in, in venezuela so like i my very minuscule vocabulary that i have in 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 japanese it's it comes from that it comes from hair hand uh ashi is food parts of the body and some colors and of course the numbers when i heard you know that obsession in japan about cats and I, it will take you less than a day to hear the word neko in Japan. And when I heard, oh, you know, cat is neko. I remember neko ashidashi, which is one of the postures of karate. <laughs> yeah. Neko ashidashi. That's great. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's best. You'll always have that. You'll never forget that. That's great. Never. But you speak English fluently. When did yep. you start studying English? It's a, because of my father. I started at a very early age. My father was, I think one of the goals from dad to my brother and myself was for us to speak second language fluently because he knew the power of, of, of speaking a second language. When he was young, he applied for a scholarship to study a postgraduate degree in London. And um, he's a psychiatrist. 
back in the day, there was political, Venezuela has always had political issues, but his university closed, so he couldn't continue studying. He had to continue studying in Spain and then went back to Venezuela, and he liked that thing of studying overseas. So he was a young uh, doctor from med school, graduated from med school, who wanted to study psychiatry. He always wanted to go outside, to say, overseas, and, and he, he, he was working in a, in a hospital and paying a guy from Trinidad and Tobago uh, private lessons for, for English so he can pass the test and get the scholarship to study in England. He, w- he worked so hard into learning a second language that as soon as he had kids, he was like, I'm doing this with the kids from a very early age because this is bloody difficult <laughs> when you are older. And um, first thing he did, he, there was this uh, uh, English um, method called the Barrett Circus. And I remember listening to cassettes. This Barrett Circus, I think, was a, was a BBC method with um, comics. So the entire book was looked like a comic book. All the characters are uh, circus characters. So you got the, the, the master of ceremonies, you got the lion, you got the clown, you got the acrobats and the magician. They all have amazing character voices for kids that are very attractive for kids to listen to. And I have this picture in, in, in this memory of, I don't know why, but lights out in a bedroom with my brother, myself and my dad and, my, and the, the cassette player and, and my father playing the cassette with everything dark. So you can only listen to what was happening. It makes sense in a way he's like, Let's cut all the distractions because I want these kids to focus on listening. My brother and I, we developed a, a, a love for these characters. And uh, like any, any English teaching method, there were moments where you have to repeat what they were saying and repeat the conversation. I was four or five years old with this. Mm. And how old was your brother? Four years older, so seven or eight. Do you think your dad was learning as well with you? Probably refreshing, yeah, mm-hmm. probably refreshing. Uh, it's interesting because my dad now has uh, uh, proper uh, Alzheimer's, he's 88, mm-hmm. and uh, he's in a home in Spain now. Uh, and sometimes, like, his, his brain is it's very difficult to have a conversation with him, he forgets everything. Sometimes he forgets who we are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes his words in English come up mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Really? He's talking to us and he tries to communicate and then he, you know the expression so-so, like how are you feeling, so-so? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're speaking to him in Spanish and then he will go, so-so. <laughs> yeah. and, and other expressions in English, which is, it's interesting that that's, that's what happens in his brain. That's, it's so, I don't know, the neuro, neurology behind it, but I, it's, there's something about the brain and, and the language area of the brain that that stays that behaves in a weird way i don't know and so it started with those tapes and then yes. as you got yes. older as, as i got older um my father uh, got my brother and i we went to to normal school in venezuela it wasn't bilingual so we didn't have any any english there was some english in the school but no one comes out of a venezuelan school speaking fluent english uh, and so my father gave us private tuition once a week for, without exaggerating, uh, the entire uh, primary school and high school years. So 
while um, my friends had other activities after school, once a week I had English and I was the only one of my friends that I had to go to English school. And English. was it a tutor, like a one-on-one -on -one situation? Or yes, tutor, one-on-one -on -one situation. I forgot the name of the program she was using. Her name was uh, Bryce, Miss Bryce. But she was the, the first one and then the second one was Marjorie, Marjorie Jimenez. So a lot of the lessons that I can recall now, because I was little, was reading out loud a book in front of her hmm. and then stopping asking the questions about the words and how they use and then she 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 would stop every now and then to teach me why this phrase was constructed that way or the vocabulary and then um, another way was learning songs and try so listening to the song and listen carefully to to hear if I could pick up the words and write the lyrics transcribe them from listening to the song I remember uh, Help from the Beatles was was one of the songs that I <laughs> that I still have that memory with Marjorie. I think at the er, latest years with Marjorie was just mainly reading books in English out loud. But before that, we had this. It was like like the uni, similar to the Barrett Circus, but it mm -hmm. wasn't. It was American. It was in BBC, and there were students in university mm -hmm. from different countries. And there was homework, and there was a workbook, and we had to, again, listening to cassettes and filling and, and repeating. And, and then it got to a point where it was, uh, from very early age, speaking English, then when it stopped, because I graduated from, my father went, okay, you graduated from high school, that's it, no more English lessons. I went to uni for, for a year. And I did, I did really badly in, in that first uni. Uh, so I, I, I think because that uni was only for engineers. And I only got in, the, in that university because I passed the test. And it's, it's, it's a public university in Venezuela. It's one of the best universities. It's a very, um, uh, how do you say when it has good reputation? Like, was it elite school? Or? Elite education, yeah. Like, mm. it, it, it wasn't, it's hard to get into that, that, that uni. And I passed the test and my brother was already studying there. And just things about being a kid, like the, the decision wasn't about, I want to be an engineer. It was like, I got in the best one. My brother, it would be super amazing for my family to say that we got two kids in this uni. And that's why I went in. Right. <laughs> Zero career uh, vocational, vocation. I just, I just let's see what happens. And then I, I, I realized that I was terrible at fixed physics and and mathematics and I remember there was a my first test the scoring was over 35 points so if you got 35 out of 35 was perfect and I scored three out of 35 <laughs> yeah it was like that I, ha I had a second butthole after that day <laughs> did you have pressure from your dad or anyone else to study at an English-speaking university no, not at all. But to continue the story, yeah. when I did mm -hmm. that, I said, hey, this is, oh, you're going to like this story. This is a friend of mine uh, mm -hmm. whose father, this is a friend from high school, and his father quit his job. So they, this friend of mine, his father was in a very, uh, in a great financial situation. And he quit his job and he found an opportunity. He was like, okay, mom, dad, and the two children, my friend and his sister, all four of them didn't know how to speak English. 
So let, uh, let's say this is, he is, my friend was my same age, so he was 17 years old. So this guy decided to move the entire family for a year to America. They went to Boston. They, from living in an amazing place to a tiny, 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 very humble two-bedroom apartment in Boston. And the idea was to get the two kids in a good English school was Northeastern University in Boston, the English program. So the dad became, he enrolled as a volunteer for the new automatic TOEFL test. It, it wasn't uh, cassettes or written anymore. It was on a computer. So he was the English as a second language volunteer for the program to develop the... Oh, like a beta the, tester. Yes. So at the same time, he was learning a lot of English because he was taking tests all the time. And, his, and, and my friend's mom, because they were going out of budget because of two kids, and, and it was a big investment, like to move on. Into, even though they were in a good financial situation in Venezuela, in America, that doesn't translate. So they were doing their best to save. So the mom went to free English lessons at a church. They actually a, a little bit religious. They they're Catholic, and um, so she was going free lessons at church. The dad was going uh, a tester for the new TOEFL, mm-hmm. and the two kids were going to a good uni study English. So when I failed at uni and I needed to figure out about my life, I said, "Hey, dad, why don't I continue my English?" And my friend Miguel Angel, uh, who was in Boston, they're living in Boston, so and he's doing an English course. Maybe I can just do a one month, two month course over there just to get and finally be in a place where everybody speaks English because my only experience was private tuition. And they went, okay, let's do that. Like, it's not that I'm going crazy. I'm, I'm just still learning something. <laughs> yeah. So I talked to my friend and I said, hey, you can pay rent. And <laughs> what I did, I was sleeping. So my friend's bedroom was his sister, his sister's bed, his bed. And there was a, a big enough space for a mattress for a single bed mattress in the floor. So I actually moved and lived with them for two months. And I did, when I arrived, I did a test at Northeastern University and their English program, and I got on the highest tier. And this was from learning all those years at home in Venezuela. And my friend's father was like, hey, kid, uh, we came here to speak English. He picked me up at the airport with my friend, and, and we spoke Spanish until we... We step at the, at the front door, and then from now on, we we spoke to you in Spanish till now because mm-hmm. you just arrived from Venezuela. But from now on, we're making a big effort for this family to learn to speak English, to learn how to speak English. So no Spanish at home. So I was speaking in English to my friend from childhood, in my Venezuelan friend, who, whom I spoke to him in Spanish all my life, and we were speaking in English all day, every day. We were going to school to school together, the same classes, same lessons, and then back home, at home. It was funny because when they were starting, they started fighting as a normal family, Spanish had to come out. Like, it's impossible to... <laughs> and I think that those two months mm-hmm. consolidated my, my, the English in my system, 100%. I have a question about those fights. Yep. Those fights where the Spanish got let loose. Yes. Did the parents let loose first or did the kids... I think the parents, absolutely. The and mom. Then, oh, yeah, the, the mom. <laughs> that is a wonderful story. So that solidified <laughs> your, your English kind of yeah. experience. 
That's incredible. I I remember I I was getting headaches Mm -hmm. on the first two weeks. I was telling my friend's mom, I'm getting headaches, getting headaches. And she was like, this is because you're speaking English that happened to us. You gave me a you know Panadol, but you know you'll be fine as soon. And it is like, and and when I moved to Australia, I felt that again. Like I know there's something in the brain that it hurts because you got your your survival uh, receptors a hundred percent. You're in a different environment with different language, and everything has to be reconnected. And it it happens. It does happen. You get headaches when you live in a different country with a different different language, and you're forcing yourself to speak that language. And when you were in Australia, did those headaches last about two weeks as well? Yeah, a couple of weeks, yeah. And when did you move to Australia? Did you move soon after the Boston? No, no, no. So I've been to Australia. uh, This is my second time. The first time was in 2004. Mm -hmm. It was way after. So let's say I went to Boston. I think it was 1997 when I went to Boston. And then the next time I went to an English-speaking place was uh, 2004. So in Australia, that time was Brisbane, and I lived for two years, and then went back to Venezuela, and then I lived in Spain, and then back to Australia in 2012. So I've been, this last time, eight years in Australia. This last time is when I started doing comedy in English. Wow. And had you done comedy in Spanish before that? Yeah, so um, before migrating to Australia, I did comedy, I think, for about four, three years, three, four years. I loved it. I, I got to a point, like, comedy in Venezuela was also, it was a similar thing as the sushi story. Stand-up comedy was a new thing, and a lot of political stuff happened where a TV station closed, and, and it was like our comedy relief for the entire country. That TV station had the, the longest-running comedy sketch show of the country and um, I think it was over 20 years every Monday at eight imagine uh, it's like like a soap opera but comedy <laughs> and um, when the comedians the stand-up comedians of the country were just famous people from that tv show who did their solo shows so we didn't have comedy clubs or or a stand-up comedy circuit when that happened, three other things happened. And, and there was a, a famous Colombian comedian. Um, his name is Andres Lopez, who was like the, the new Latin American face of comedy. Another thing happened where um, a, a guy who lived in Spain and did some, they call it comedy monologues in Spain. They don't call it stand-up. They call it monologos de humor. Humor monologues. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or monologos de comedia. They have those. They don't call it stand-up. He arrived and said, there's no stand-up comedy in Venezuela. He opened an open mic on a Monday in a bar. Same thing. The need for comedy was so big in Venezuela because there was no, from that TV show and also the, a lot of radio stations were closed. The government closed the radio stations because they were against the government. So there was a lot of uh, mainstream comedy that wasn't happening. So I, after a year, you, you know what it takes to open a new comedy gig it takes years for the gig to, to work. For this guy, it only took less than a year from nothing to packed house. And um, because it was the only one, it was the niche was there, the, the market was there, nobody was ex- exploiting it. And um, when that thing was happening, a friend of mine said, let's, let's do this, you're very funny, you, you love to do jokes. I didn't know you could do comedy. I just love to tell jokes. Uh, my friend studied in, uh, he's a musician. He studied in, in Berkeley, in Boston as well. And I was like, he's, he's a very methodic 
Is that a word? Methodic? Yeah, yeah, that's a word. Methodic. methodic. <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes I, I say words that sound English, but I think they're, they're just, I'm, I'm turning a Spanish word in English without knowing. Do you do that often? Yeah. And then I go, is that a word? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes on stage, I do that. I go, blah, blah, blah. Did I? Is that a word? They go, oh, I discovered a word. Great. But usually is it a word that by context people could figure out what it is? Because my, my question is, is it methodic or methodical? Well, you didn't finish the sentence, so I can't tell you. So my yeah. friend likes, uh, he, he likes a method. He likes to... He likes to be methodical. There you go. He likes to be methodical. Okay. There we go. Okay. Because yeah, his face is methodical. <laughs> so he was... And, and he has great ideas and he's a very, very smart human. And I say, okay, man, you just tell me how to do this and I'll follow you. Okay. We downloaded books. We transcribed routines from YouTube in English. We transcribed them, transcribed them and, and figured out what was the premise, what was, what was the punchline, what was the structure of how, lo- how often you have jokes in and how often you have laugh breaks. And we did the entire dissection of of comedy and we started to learn what was the difference between a joke that you learn that is a popular joke that everybody knows but you just tell a joke the difference between that and stand-up once we started doing comedy the difference between the two of us and the rest was notorious like you go oh, these guys are doing stand-up and the other guy is just getting there and telling jokes and, and trying to be funny without any structure mm-hmm. so we developed a name very quickly, very mm. quickly. So within three years, I was already making a living as a comedian. Wow. And, you know, being on radio and doing corporate gigs. So we didn't, we didn't have enough material. So it was, there was another guy. So we, we created a, a trio. It was like a little showcase that we presented for corporates. And um, we all did 15 minutes and uh, it was perfect for corporate. And the three of us, although we were making a crazy amount of money f- for our belief, like we're just telling jokes and making money, the money that a famous person from that TV show was charging for corporate shows was 10 times that. So this corporate business we're taking, we're getting three comedians for a 10th of the price of one of the famous comedians from the telly. So we, we started making, we were so happy and the corporate shows were like, perfect. You, we needed you guys to come because these guys were I'm not, I'm not going to say they were briefing them. They were making, now that I know what it's like to have a, a solid set and act and, and how terrible corporate gigs are. <laughs> uh, they were charging decent, a proper, a right amount. Right. And, uh, they have been working very hard for many, many years and they deserve that money. But for us, we were like, we were just having 15 minutes of jokes, hanging out with my two good friends and making, you know, yeah, you were still new enough and enjoyed comedy enough to not realize how miserable corporate gigs are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I find it really interesting that you that you dissected those jokes and transcribed it and dissected it and figured out the punchline, the setup, the twist, all of that. And somehow you don't think you're an engineer. <laughs> Well, I never thought about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think um, I started the wrong, the wrong food with engineering because after 
then my I made a career out of food and and not precisely cooking in restaurants. I I studied food technology and then I started brewing. So I really enjoy being in a big uh, manufacturing plant and and seeing the process. I'm terrible at thermodynamics and physics, but I'm I'm good at biochemistry. I like the 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 process and I like I was one of these kids who I don't know, maybe I was the only kid, but I I see a kind of tuna. I remember being 10 like and then looking at the fresh tuna that my mom was buying and looking at the kind of tuna, how the hell that tuna got inside that can and why does it look so different? <laughs> Because my my family cooks a lot, they're Spanish, so there's always good food at home, like uh, fresh food. And and I, I've seen my grandma making mayonnaise at home, like fresh mayo, homemade mayo. And then I see the mayo that my grandma makes, and I see the mayo in a jar. So why why the one in the jar is white? One the one that my grandma makes is yellow, and they taste different, but they both mayo. What's the difference? Like what makes that mayo mm-hmm. become that mayo? <laughs> <laughs> it was an an ongoing thing for me like homemade cookies the difference between the biscuits you buy in a packet and why like why you cannot make oreos at home what's why that's the brain of an engineer <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> yeah. except you weren't taking apart telephones and computers you were yeah. just ripping the kitchen apart that's yes <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> exactly Getting back to language, now you said that you solidified your English. How would you describe your English level now? My English level now. Oof. Well, if I'm filling out a form, mm-hmm. I'll say fluent. But I still think, for example, I read books at night. I've been doing that for for the last year. As leave my phone outside the bedroom and I fall asleep reading a book. Smart, and uh, it's it's work. It has my life. Yeah, it's I have a different life. Like I, I rest better, uh, and I'm reading books, which is always good. <laughs> so I'm reading a book. My girlfriend is next to me. She's reading books. So I often stop and ask, "What's this word?" Often, if I'm reading the book on the Kindle, I don't have to ask that question because I just press the word and I get a definition. Sometimes I get to a point where I, like, I press. And I still don't understand. Sometimes you read the definition, and you say, but I still don't know how that definition works in this sentence. This doesn't make sense. And then suddenly that definition has an urban definition or, or a colloquial use that is not official that was used. So that's my level. My level is I can read a book, but I'm still, I don't have, I don't think my vocabulary is rich enough. Sorry, rich enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, one of the questions uh, uh, I forgot the exact questions but this is the answer to one of those questions of how did the new language has helped me to because of my short vocabulary in English compared to Spanish my comedy got better because I think English is a great language for comedy for stand-up comedy mm. because it's a, it's a language that goes straight to the point and comedy needs you to go straight to the point as quick as possible or make, make a point of your premise quicker. With my lack of vocabulary, my short vocabulary in English, I try to do my best. I, I use those words to my best 
the best of your ability. The best of my ability. So the joke is a lot cleaner. I don't have, I know you know the terms, but probably people listening don't know the terms that we trim the fat of our, of, of our jokes. Sometimes they don't, there's not too much fat to trim because I didn't have enough vocabulary to put fat on it. I don't know if it makes sense. Well, you, there was no fat to begin with because you didn't exactly. have the vocabulary. Which, which leads me to my next question. What percentage of your audience do you think is non-native English speakers? Um, usually 20%. Festival shows. Because especially in Australia, the foreigners come to the shows only in festivals. They don't have much of a comedy club culture. So when I'm in a comedy club, it's 100% Australian. I ask that because me doing comedy in Japan for so many years and then moving to the UK, I'll always have someone come up to me that's a non-native English speaker and say, yeah. I liked you because I understood you 100%. And I think that's from talking to non-native English speakers for so long. I feel yeah. like I've limited my vocabulary in a way to Keanu Reeves vocabulary sometimes <laughs> stage. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's one way to make sure everyone understands you every time. Is that a joke? It's a premise that my idea, the reason why Keanu Reeves, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? It's beautiful. It's a, it's an amazing premise. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Keanu Reeves, any action star, they're going to be famous until they die because anyone who's ever had to study English can understand every single word they say because they have a vocabulary of 50 words. It's yeah. like Dr. Seuss with a semi-automatic. That's <laughs> what it is. Yes, that's great. Oh my god! And then I can see the joke. The, the joke. You know, I used to say this and then make it very complicated. And then I translate it to. And then you go Keanu Reeves, blah 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 blah, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, blah 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. good to write again. That's so funny. Uh, and and again, the importance of the premise. It's a good premise, and then the jokes just come up. This just they write themselves. Yeah. The difficult bit is the premise, and that's brilliant. <laughs> I didn't... Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's the equivalent in food of a cheese toasty. That's that's my um, like a, a cheese toasty. A, 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 oh, we, what, uh, a, we call grilled, it um, grilled cheese. Grilled cheese, grilled cheese sandwich. It's so simple, and that's that's why you never get bored of eating a grilled cheese sandwich. You never go, oh, I had one yesterday. No, you can have it again. <laughs> But that could happen with with paella, seafood paella. You can go, or, or ramen. Like I had ramen yesterday. Let's. I want something simple. Like it with vocabulary is the same. Like I, I listened to Stephen Fry yesterday. I just want another Schwarzenegger today. <laughs> Stephen Fry was too much. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't want to have to think too much. I just want to get to it. Yeah. That's with the palate as well and flavors. Like too many flavors can be overpowering like or or complicated recipes True. Uh, like a curry you know i don't want to eat curry every day but you right. can eat you can eat cheese sandwiches every day every that's day. that's the equivalent i know such negative vocabulary is it it's it's a cheese sandwich <laughs> it's so I, easy I, to digest <laughs> and i highly recommend going to a foreign country where they speak a language you don't speak and going to an action movie there, right? <laughs> and because I, I remember I watched The Matrix. In, I watched all, all of The Matrixes in Japan. And yep. the last one 
where Keanu Reeves gets stuck in the um, subway. He's just, yeah. and he goes, oh, fuck. And <laughs> everyone just, their face lit up with understanding. They didn't have to read the subtitles, you know? And even though it was just <laughs> yeah. one word, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, I speak English well. You know? <laughs> Those six years weren't for nothing. It's just an incredible feeling of accomplishment, you know? <laughs> I get that. I do want to ask you about dating in a second language. Yeah. Because last time I was in New York, I went to a restaurant and I saw someone on a date, a native English-speaking woman, with, I think, a Russian-speaking guy. And I was eavesdropping because I was so fascinated by the fact that I could tell that his English wasn't great. Yep. And she just kept saying, you're such a good listener. It's just like, oh, no, honey, no. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. So dating in a second language. I've thought a lot about this. Um, I've had um, Alicia will be my, my second long-term relationship in a second language. You, you, you met my previous partner back in Edinburgh and um, she was the first. And I was finding it uh, difficult to mm-hmm. communicate emotions. But now with Alicia, I find it very easy. And I thought a lot about this. And I think, um, do you know how, I don't know how there's, there's a saying in Spanish, I don't know, there must be a saying that means a similar thing in English, that every head is a different world. To say that every 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 mind is a different universe, kind of thing. Universe, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think dating in a second language, uh, I think it's more important the language. It's more important the person than the language. Okay, so the person is more important than the language. Yes, because I think there's even in your own language, there's person, there's people whom you communicate very easily, and there's people who you can't communicate very easily. Even in mm-hmm. your even even if you're both native speakers of the same language, you know that expression. Are you speak? Are we speaking the same language? Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with the language. It's about. I think it's about that. That is the language that's important. Because I was thinking, these are two Australian women. They grew up Australian. They grew up in part of the same time. One, I'm constantly asking myself if I'm if if I've been understood. Also, constantly questioning. Do I really understand what she's saying? And with the other one, I'm like, yeah, I'm not even questioning that at all. And I think it's how the person communicates. Maybe Alicia, it's because she, she grew up in a multicultural environment, also related to Japan. Um, her, her mom taught uh, English in Japan for a long time. Then when she was back in Australia and Alicia was a, a, a little girl, she had a, a lot of Japanese people staying in her place who were international students, uh, international teachers, teachers who taught Japanese to Australians and they were staying at her place. Oh, wow. So she grew up and her mom speaks very good Japanese and, and uh, she understands how to talk. Maybe she understands how to talk to a person who speaks a second language. Maybe she has a Schwarzenegger version of her. One thing about relationships that I've, if you, get, if you understand your partner when he's half asleep in the morning, then you get it. Then you understand the language. Because that, that morning, that mumbling morning that is not clear, if you understand the words there, then, then you're fluent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good sign. So, yeah, I don't think it's about the language because I've, I've met people who speak 
who are uh, you know intermediate English and they have partners who are who don't speak Spanish and they they are hundred percent English speakers. They get along so well. I think has nothing to do with the language. I've always told people to be cautious, especially if they don't have any international experience, because if you don't have international experience, it just takes longer to realize someone's an asshole. Yeah. Because, because, because you give maybe, them a benefit. Maybe the other one was an asshole and I didn't get it. I, I was thinking maybe it was that. Yeah, maybe you know, you're like, problem. you know, because you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're like, well, maybe this is a culture difference or maybe this is a family thing. And then you talk to enough people and they're like, oh, no, 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 that's bad shit. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe that was, maybe that was my problem. But yeah, maybe I didn't know she was an asshole. And, and then that was the reason it didn't work. I would tell people, you know, if something happens, give it 48 hours and ask around if this is normal behavior. Yeah. yeah. And by then, <laughs> you'll, yeah. you should have a consensus about whether yeah. or not this is reasonable or unreasonable behavior. Yeah. But uh, I think I want to talk about... Um, People ask me, "Hey, Ryan, how how come you've done comedy? In, how come you're doing comedy in a second language? And mm-hmm. and um, can you give us advice?" So there's there's a few things I tell them. One important thing is to don't be ashamed that you don't understand. So, for example, I I encourage people to stop conversations and say, "Sorry, I didn't get that." And there is a natural thing that we avoid that because we think. We're going to be judged, and what we don't we don't understand is that people appreciate when you want to understand what they're saying. People appreciate the effort. What people don't like is being ignored or or blanked. It's hard for people to go. Sorry, what's that? What was that word? I didn't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, this word means this. Oh, thank you, thank you. And even if, if even take it to the extreme, how do you spell that word? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, English speakers don't know how to spell it in their own language. <laughs> Well, a lot of English speakers, I can't spell out loud, but I can write it down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's weird. No, it's weird. My fiance is like, how do you spell? And I'm like, ah, let me get a pen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe in a relationship, where we take that idea, you have to be very vocal on how on your struggle that sometimes it's difficult for you to understand some things and you have to ask many times because you are the one who wants to speak the you know you're you're the external one you have to adapt you have to change and i realize in any relationship not just i think living in another country with a second language a different culture as well it's like starting a new relationship with that country mm. so it's very similar to going on a date first date you have to ask questions and show interest you cannot go on a first date talking about yourself and pointing out the flaws of your day. Because <laughs> that's not, not going to take you anywhere. So you, when you show interest, a lot of people are going to be grateful for that. And they're going to tell you. Speaking their language is a beautiful thing. It's a very, uh, it's a loving gesture. And you go, I wanna, when you tell me, I want to say your name properly, I appreciate that so much. I'm glad like, I eventually did that. <laughs> yeah, I go, oh, that's nice. She cares. That's what it is. Like when you ask, how do you, it means you care. You want to speak their language properly. Don't be afraid 
you're never going to be looked at, a, at a, as a fool or as an ignorant. No, you're going to be looked like someone who cares. And that's the main thing that I, I tell people to do. And for me, I'm, I'm very uh, auditive. I like, for me, the best way to train my English is to watch movies with subtitles in English. Mm -hmm. So I can hear the word. I can see the word being written I can I can see the I can hear the pronunciation because the pronunciation most of the time is so different to what I see on the word because as a Spanish speaker you know for us spelling is mm -hmm. very phonetic so most of the time we don't have any problem with spelling because what you see is what you say so English has so many different variations of vowels and combinations of letters that if they're together the sound is different so you have to listen to the word and then put that the image of the word in your mind and then combine those two which is my biggest uh, with learning japanese it's like i am pretty sure if japanese had, had a an alphabet i would have already speaking be speaking the language but it doesn't have the alphabet it does kind of i have to memorize new scribbles <laughs> well well you don't have to memorize new scribbles it's actually it's the first thing i learned in uh, in high school japanese class was for a week we had to learn and all of that in the order and it yeah. really helps because even when you go you know back when people still bought cds and stuff everything was still in that order yeah so okay it does someone exist and you don't have to write the sound the signs to know it and there's only five vowels so yeah and you can already do the the hard sound which is the r sound which is not really yeah. an r it's an r and yeah. l and a d you can do all that so you've got the hard yeah. stuff down it's just memorizing that order i'll send it to yeah. you <laughs> I've, I've, i've got i've got the the hardware i need the software <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, we've come to our last two questions. Okay. Yep. So my first question is, what language do people speak in heaven? If there is a heaven, I'll say, I don't know. Because if there is a heaven, I think everybody will be able to communicate freely. Let's say mm -hmm. the language of the heart. Nice. <laughs> That's good. And my last question, what language do people speak in hell? Uh, either German or Russian. <laughs> Because I don't know. It sounds sounds like hell. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I have been victim of um, being um, how do you say uh, mani manipulated from Hollywood and movies, and maybe I'm saying that out of that. But yeah, yeah, okay. These are languages. These are languages that sound very harsh. Mm. Or maybe yeah, Romanian. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> you have to yell in hell i think you have to be make your voice everybody's screaming and yelling and suffering so you have to be louder than the rest and so the romanians you know are louder than everybody else it can't be like latinos we are very loud mm -hmm. but we're loud happy right so it has to be loud angry so that's why i think russian or german something <laughs> <laughs> that's great thank you so much for doing this and thank you for taking all the time to to do my this. pleasure my pleasure thank you so much Brian. so good to see you um big hug to tim and to Yay. yourself and uh congratulations on the news you gave me you're welcome <laughs> and yeah I don't, i don't know if we can say this in the podcast but you, well, it was good. 
you know, I, 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 nobody will care. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. We, we appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. This is great. And I'm going. I'm going to press stop now. Mm-hmm.